Hello, and welcome to the Conversations with Data podcast, where we bring you the most interesting discussions around data journalism. I'm your host, Tara Kelly, and today we'll be speaking with data journalists Duncan Gear and Miriam Quick, the co-hosts of the new data sonification podcast, Loud Numbers. The pair speak to us about what sonification means for data storytelling, how they got started with it, and what stories work best for this novel medium. They also talk us through the code and tools used to sonify data, and even play us a couple of snippets from their podcast. Let's take a listen to our conversation with Duncan Gear and Miriam Quick now. Duncan Gear and Miriam Quick, welcome to Conversations with Data. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Yeah, uh, it's great to have you guys here. Now, for those of us who don't know, you know, what sonification is, let's start with that. How would you define that? And maybe how does it apply to data storytelling? Yeah, so to us, um, sonification is the art and the science of turning data into sound. And there's loads and loads of different ways that you can do that, you know, as many as there are different kinds of sound. You know, from the, you know, a simple like ping of a smartphone notification, all the way up to a complex eight-part symphony where the data governs how all the different melodic lines interact with each other. Um, there's, there's a whole like range of different kinds of sonification that you can do. Um, what our project is a little bit more like the second one. <laughs> That's actually um, the example I gave. There was actually the fourth episode of our podcast. So we are very much in the uh, the complicated end of sonification. But there are lots of really cool things you can do with simple sonification too. Marvelous. Now, tell us a bit about your background. I know both of you are in the data journalism field. But how did you find yourself in this in this field? And also, how did you come across sonification for data storytelling? My background is um, I've been a data journalist and a researcher since uh, about 2011. But I actually came into working with data and data visualization through music. I did a PhD in music at King's College London. And as part of that, I was um, using quite a lot of data in my PhD. It was quite an empirical approach that I took. I was starting to make charts and um, I got kind of interested in statistics. So I've always kind of had those twin channels going on, like music and data at the same time. Um, And obviously sonification is the thing that combines them. And I've been really keen for several years to work on something that that turns um, data into music in a kind of systematic and also exciting, kind of musically exciting way. And then for my part, I um, have been a journalist since about 2008, something like that. Um, I started out in in tech writing and then moved into sort of covering science and environmental topics. And as I began to write about more complicated subjects, I sort of realized that I wanted more tools at my disposal than just words. And so I started getting in, getting into kind of making maps and making charts and things like that. And so I moved into the field of, of data journalism from sort of just standard journalism as if they're two separate things, which they're absolutely not these days. Um, and I'd always been interested in music. You know, I, I spent a lot of my 20s DJing and I was in a couple of bands and things like that. And as sort of time goes on, went on, I, I realized that, you know, it would be really cool to, to combine these things. And I came, I'd come across a couple of examples of sonification um, that I thought were really cool. And I thought, wow, I, I, you know, 
there must be a sonification podcast out there. I should go and uh, I should go and find it. And I looked and and there wasn't one. And and then I sort of waited and I was like, you know, somebody's going to make one sooner or later, but they didn't. So I sort of figured out that I had to just, you know, just do it myself. <laughs> Marvelous. So yeah, that brings me to my next question. Tell us about Loud Numbers, your data sonification podcast. What is the most surprising thing you've sort of come across with this project and, and what was your motivation for it? Yeah, I mean, my motivation was very much to just, you know, have have some like great sonification work that I could listen to, um, and you know, probably sort of build my skills as well. I I I don't know. The idea had been knocking around in my head for a year or two by the time that I actually talked to Miriam about it at an awards do in London, which is only the second time we'd ever met. And actually, because of COVID, is the last time that we ever <laughs> that we've met. We haven't actually seen each other in person in eighteen months. Um, so yeah, I, I chatted to Miriam because I knew that she had she'd done a little bit of sonification work and um, she had a strong background in music. Yeah, so I'd had some experience with sonification uh, before I'd done a project um, called Sleep Songs, which um, was a collaboration between myself and the information designer Stephanie Posovec. And we basically measured our breathing rate while we were asleep, along with our husbands, and took that data and Stephanie turned it into a visual artwork and I turned it into um, two pieces of music where the, the rhythm of the, the inner parts in, in the music corresponds to the changes in our breathing rate over the eight hours that we were asleep. So I'd done a little bit of kind of turning data into music before, and I knew that the, there was quite a lot of work involved. And I just wonder if you guys could play us um, the latest clip from your June episode on tasting notes. Oh yeah, yeah, this is the one about beer tasting, yeah. Um, okay, so it sounds a little bit like this. So, wit beer. It's like bright yellow and hazy, almost like a stone. It's not quite what most people expect from a beer. Being flavoured with coriander seed and citrus zest, it's more of like a fresh and slightly spicy aroma, unlike any other. And it's also very low in bitterness making it really easy on the palate while being delicious. But it's also, it's not very light. It's, so, it's got quite high carbonation and full body. Yeah, it's got some character to it. We wanted to create these short pieces of music that really replicate the experience of drinking beer. So it's like turning data into, an, into a sound and into an experience um, so that you can really hear the taste, as it were. There's a kind of synesthesia thing going on with this, with this episode. Um, it was actually inspired by Brian Eno. Oh, you know the Windows 98 sound for startup on Windows? It's like only six seconds long, but it's this really complete piece of music all by itself. It's got a beginning and a middle and an end. And the idea is that each of the pieces of music um, in the beer episodes lasts as long as the beer's aftertaste. So we've got beers with a short aftertaste that last about 10 seconds. We've got um, medium aftertaste that lasts about 20 seconds. And then we've got um, long aftertaste that lasts about 60 seconds. We had 10 different beers, which made 10 different pieces of music. So one per beer. Um, and each one has 10 different sort of parameters associated with it around taste and around aroma and around the look of it and everything. We got these numbers from 
um, a woman called Marlin Davinger, who is a beer taster, a professional beer taster in Sweden. And she gave us these, um, these scores that she'd done for these, these 10 different beers. We asked her to taste 10 different beers and give us her scores for them. And so the louder the sound um, associated with each parameter, the stronger that taste or that aroma. So for example, um, a Wit beer, which is a Belgian beer, has a very high carbonation. And so we have this fizziness sound. And because it's high carbonation, you hear that fizziness sound quite loudly. And you also hear the sweetness sound quite loudly. And it has maybe like a moderate body, for example. Um, and the bass note is the body. So the bass sound is a little bit quieter than it might be on a beer that has greater body. It's a very complicated system, but but that's because taste is is very complicated. I think the little clip that I just played you is is one of the one of the most complicated of our sonifications. A lot of our other sonifications have relatively few parameter mappings. There's just like two or three, and they play out over a long space of time. Whereas this one has ten, and they fit in ten seconds. So there's a lot of kind of like data being dropped at the same time. But you know we're not creating these with the intent that people are going to you know, be able to read specific numbers out of them. We just want people to get more of an impression in the same way that when you drink a beer, you don't think, you know, ah, oh, this has a six out of 10 body. You think, oh, this has you know, a medium amount of body. And, and I think that that very much comes across in the sound. Or it just tastes good. <laughs> or it just tastes good. Yeah. Some people don't even think about it at that level. And, um, you know, you can uh, hopefully when people to when people listen to this music, they think, oh, that sounds good. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And we wanted there to be this kind of intuitive connection between the sounds that we use to represent the taste and the taste themselves. So, for example, like the fizziness, uh, like Duncan said, it's like an upward sweep that goes kind of bubbly sound. Uh, the sweetness is um, very kind of like a pleasant, harmonious chord because sweetness is a pleasant sensation. Bitterness is kind of a hard-edged, kind of gritty sound. Malt, we used a, an electric guitar chord because we associate kind of maltiness or beer with like being in a bar, listening to a band. So there's these quite strong emotional connections in, in the music. And I just wonder, I mean, did you ever get to a point where you're like, Oh, you're experimenting with this and you're trying to create this and it just doesn't sound good. Like, so what do you do then? Do you change the story or do you just change the instrument or the tone or the treatment you're thinking? We, we never changed the story. We started off with data sets that we then eventually used um, and we got those fixed quite early. Um, Duncan found those. Um, so we always knew that we were going to stick to those data sets. So I think there are things that you can do to really um, tweak the parameters and tweak the systems that you're using to sonify the data so that it does sound good. And there's a lot of trial and error involved in that. You know, you can come up with different ways of mapping what you call mapping um, the data to sound. For example, you might want to use pitch to um, map the data to sound so that the higher the pitch, the higher the number. You might want to use loudness so that the louder the sound, the higher the number. You can use the strength of an audio effect. You know, in our beer episode, we've got um, alcohol, I think, which is the more alcohol, the wobblier the sound. So we've used the sort of pitch bend audio effect on that. Um, and all these decisions contribute to the sound of the result. And you can optimize them according to what you think sounds good. To add to that, I, I would say that generally in situations where it isn't sounding good. It's usually just because there's too much going on. And in our first episode, we it, it was the first sonification that we did. It's about climate change. And 
um, our first version of this, this track, which is kind of a techno track, had just too much stuff on it. And we sort of realized when we came back to it later on in the project, and we were like, this doesn't sound as good as our, 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 our later work. <laughs> um, we came back to it and we were like, yeah, we just need to kind of strip it down and strip it back and just like bring out the story, let the story come forward rather than sort of drowning it in extra data sets that weren't needed. So that was another approach that we took. Right. And maybe we should move on to the next one that I really enjoyed, the U.S. economy in the 60s up until 2020. Um, why did you pick this story? And, you know, what is most surprising about this? Yeah, this was a, this was a really fun one. We, we wanted to do something with financial quarters um, because financial quarters fit really nicely into musical time, which operates in groups of four. You know, you always have four beats in a bar and then you have, you know, four bars go together. It just sounds good to human ears, whether I don't know if Miriam, maybe, you know, whether there's something that's actually physical about that or whether it's a cultural thing. I think it's to do with like the pendulum motion of our limbs because we're ah. bipedal and we're kind of symmetrical. So we've got two arms and two legs and then working in groups of four is kind of natural because it works with your body. Okay. Oh, interesting. Yeah, groups of two and multiples of two. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, we wanted to do something with financial quarters and then, and then Miriam had this really interesting idea about playing a drum loop forwards or backwards, depending on whether the economy was um, going forward or backward, growing or shrinking. And it was, yeah, from there we, we sort of figured out, you know, we took one of the most famous drum samples of all time, the Amen Break, um, which, you know, everybody out there would probably recognize, even if they don't know it by, by sound. Um, and in fact, sh should we play a little clip from the episode? Yes, absolutely. Let's listen to that. It's the economy, stupid! You can probably hear that that's a little bit crazy. And that, that's part of the fun of the episode because the economy is a little bit crazy, right? It's a, it's kind of a crazy subject. And what's what I think was most surprising about working on that track is, is how much the economy has grown over the time period, despite us having so many recessions, you know, constantly you're hearing the economy go backwards, but, but at the same time, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. So there are a number of mappings in the, in that track. The main one, as Duncan mentioned, is that the uh, when the drum loop plays forwards, the economy was growing that quarter. And when it plays backwards, we like we literally turn the sound file backwards, then the economy was in recession. So that's the main one. But we've also got um, the um, Dow Jones index, which is kind of mapped to that sort of gentle, wispy synthesizer sound that kicks in every so often. Um, and it's kind of cool because you can really hear the growth of the economy over time, which is sort of exponential. So it starts off quite low. And then by the end, it's this stratospherically high pitch, which is almost too high to hear. And kind of like that idea because it sort of communicates the idea that the, 
The Dow Jones Index is almost like this fantastical entity. It's almost got no relevance to people's ordinary lives because we know that you know, median real incomes in the US have pretty much stagnated since the 1970s, which is about when our um, data set begins. Our, our track runs from 1968 to 2019, I think. And there's also quite a lot of criticism of economic inequality in the track. So we've got samples from lots and lots of people and various US presidents. We end on a Tupac Shakur sample. It's quite a fun track, um, but there is a, it's got a bit of a sharp edge to it. And I think that's what's interesting about it. Yeah, we basically wanted to make a track that kind of sounded like UK Jungle. You know, it's got that kind of um, early 90s sound to it. And it, but it's also got a kind of social criticism, economic criticism going on as well. Yeah. Now, I found this one a lot easier to comprehend, so to speak. It felt like it was telling a story that I could understand. With the beer one, like you said, it was more of an experience. Whereas this, I could I could understand quite naturally what was going on here with the drums and the different sounds in the background. <laughs> Sorry, that's my simple <laughs> way of explaining what I heard. But it made sense to me, I guess is what I'm saying, as someone who's kind of new to the data sonification world. Yeah, and I think it's kind of important to, to pitch things at different levels. We have some tra some tracks that are, you know, as I said earlier, really simple, and then some that are much more complicated. And I think that it's uh, it's important to have have both in there. We wanted to sort of explore what we can do, but also, you know, keep people with us. <laughs> right. And that's a difficult line to tread sometimes. Absolutely. Um, and then the next one, I really loved this one, uh, probably because I lived in Brussels for a few years and had some experience with the European Union, but it's called Symphony of Bureaucracy. So maybe let's just play that. what we just heard exactly. So this is our fourth episode. This is called um, A Symphony of Bureaucracy, and this sonifies the number of laws that are made each year by the European Union, but also its predecessors, all the way back to the European coal and steel community in 1952 or something like that. And we got this from the European Union's amazing Eurolex, Eurovoc database, which is great. You can search it for subject matter and, and all sorts of things. But this, this track came about largely because we wanted to do something to do with Europe. Um, because when we were putting this together, it was kind of very much the moment that, that Britain was leaving the European Union. And we are both, you know, it's probably not a surprise to learn that we're both ardent Remainers. Um, I, I live in Sweden, in fact, and I'm a British citizen and now a Swedish citizen as well, thankfully. But a, a lot was made in the in the whole run up to Brexit about the supposed inefficiencies of the EU and how it was this big, like lumbering, many tentacled monster. And what kind of surprised me is 
how how efficient it is in many ways, how few civil servants actually work for the EU compared to, you know, all of the national country governments and everything. It's this, um, it, it kind of has this like wonderful sort of Byzantine quality, but it, it, it also is... Um, impressively lean in other ways. And so we took this database of laws and we wanted to make something that was celebratory about the European Union. There's not a lot of people who wave the flag for the EU. So we wanted to give it a go a little bit. And um, yeah, we, 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 we chose to use, we, we chose to kind of pay tribute to, I guess, like the history of European classical music in this. And that's where, where Miriam came in because she has um, all of these crazy mad uh, compositional skills that uh, that I lack, and what what is it? It's a fugue, right, Miriam? Maybe you better explain this. <laughs> yeah, it's a fugue. So, because the data is really about rules and laws, and about celebrating this kind of glorious labyrinthine bureaucracy, I thought it would be a really good idea to use a very strict uh, rule-based musical form to communicate this. That kind of gives a nod to the European classical tradition. Um, a fugue is actually, it's a kind of compositional form that has been popular for quite a few centuries now, but kind of from the 18th century onwards, like Bach wrote quite a lot of fugues. And they're normally in three or more parts, um, which are called voices, and everything in a fugue is melody. So you have melodies that enter in a specific order and specific ways, like specific keys. Um, and I used to write them as compositional exercises at university, so I was quite sort of familiar with, with them. And they have this sort of inventive element. So the point is to like introduce the main melody, um, which is called a subject. And then you introduce a secondary melody at the same time. Um, and then you sort of play with them in as many cool ways as you can. It's sort of like showing off in music, really. So you can kind of play them in major or minor keys. You can play them in double time or half time. You can kind of chop them up into fragments and make them modulate or do whatever. Um, so with this fugue, um, we used the theme which was um, the Ode to Joy theme by Beethoven, which is also the anthem of the European Union. So that kind of ties itself neatly in a bow. Um, and you kind of have to, yeah, like I said, you're playing, it's invention, you're playing, but you're also following these strict rules while you're playing with, with the subject. So you have to follow the rules of harmony and counterpoint. You need to make the, work, the melodies work together kind of horizontally, um, like as melodies. You've also got to make them work together vertically as chords. And it's a little bit like, I don't know, Jenga or Sudoku or something, you've got that kind of puzzle element to it. So we've got these really, really tight constraints with this, with this sonification. It's kind of more, it's very much on the, the compositional end of sonification. Like we set some very tight challenges. But while the compositional element is very, very complicated in this, the actual sonification is really, really simple. So basically, it's just the number of voices that you hear at the same time. Um, at the start of the track, you hear one voice. And at the end of the track, I think it goes down to maybe like four. And the number of voices that you can hear at any one time is tied to the amount of lawmaking going on in the EU at that point. And so, for example, um, it starts yeah, very, very small. It's mostly just laws about coal and fish. Um, and then it peaks in the late 80s. That was the peak of European lawmaking. And then it drops away again. So it's a really interesting, it, it mirrors a lot of musical structures which start out quiet and then build up to this crescendo and then fall a little bit away again for the ending. Um, so I thought that was, it was really, really interesting how this like history of lawmaking forms this like perfect musical structure. So yeah, you have thousands of new laws added to the EU database each year. Um, and we divided that up into a series of like 
bins. So, you know, when it gets to certain levels, a new voice will come in or go out again. And yeah, that that sort of got a bit tricky to make line up with the bars, right, Miriam? Yeah, so normally when you write music, you don't set constraints as tight as that. But I knew that um, because I think each year is two bars, I knew I had 136 bars for the whole piece and I needed to fit everything in and make it all sound musical and modulate through the right keys. So there's an awful lot of uh, trial and error, you know, to make it work, to make it so that every time the data went up a bin, a new voice enters, every time it goes down a bin, a voice drops out. I tried to make it so that when the voices come in, they come in with the melody so you can really hear like the Ode to Joy theme. Um, so yeah, there was a lot of a lot of constraints that at one point I thought this is just not possible. <laughs> and then I kind of just blasted through it and we got to the end and quite happy with the, with the result, especially because you can really hear the main trend in the data set, which is the story that we wanted to tell. Yeah, this was the one that we were closest to, to not actually quite finishing in time for the, for the deadline. But Miriam put in a heroic session of composition, <laughs> yeah. you know, just sitting down and just turning her phone off and everything and being like, I'm not, not going to stop this until until it's done. Yeah, I actually, I actually went to bed for the day. I was like, I just did 11 hours in bed, like writing, <laughs> writing music. So I like to work on paper because it's actually easier for me. It's kind of more intuitive. So I worked it all out on paper and then um, worked it out in a composition software, a notation software called Sibelius. And then I exported the, the MIDI file to, to Logic, which is the program that we use, the DAW that we use to kind of edit all our, our tracks um, and just applied some sounds to it. And that was it, really. Wow. Yeah, that was my next question. How did you actually technically do that. Um, and um, do, do you use the same, was that the same methodology that you did for the other two tracks we played, one on the beer and the other on the US economy? Not at all. <laughs> that, that one was pretty unique, um, mainly because we had to use, you know, Miriam's very special expertise for that one. Now, from, from our other sonifications, the, the process, the tech stack is, is pretty simple. We use Google Sheets to, you know, get, get the data together and to get it into the right shape and everything and analyze it. Um, and then we load that data into a piece of software called Sonic Pi, P-I. Um, and that's where it becomes sound. Sonic Pi is a coding language um, based on Ruby that lets you automate the most tedious parts of the sonification process, like figuring out which data values to turn into which sound values. So, you know, if the data is eight, what does that mean in terms of volume or in terms of pitch or in terms of whatever else you're deciding? And then um, th that, that process is called parameter mapping. And it's a really important part of sonification. Um, and then we, yeah, just sort of run the data through the code and it generates a series of, of notes or volumes or, or whatever for us. And then um, what comes out of it is a, a more or less complete piece of, of music or, or, you know, worst case, a collection of sounds, which we then polish and up and turn into an actual track in Logic Pro, which is a, a DAW, a digital audio workstation. Um, and the real kind of sonification work happens in Sonic Pi but logic is where it becomes music, maybe. And I guess my next question is, so how much music theory or music background does someone need who's maybe a data journalist interested in getting started with this? I mean, I, I guess it's great because Miriam does have a PhD in this, and Duncan, you have, you know, you played in bands. 
I played in bands. I mean, I, you know, I, I couldn't tell you, I, I can't play the guitar. I couldn't tell you how to form chords on a guitar or anything like that. So my musical knowledge is limited. Um, and you can definitely make punk sonifications where you just like learn two chords and off you go kind of thing. I don't know. It, it depends on what, what kind of sonification you want to do. If you want to do something that is very musically complex, then you'll definitely benefit from having some theoretical background, you know, like the fugue that we just described, but you definitely don't need it. Like, for example, there's a lot that can just be done with with tempo, for example, um, showing how frequent events happen, you know, maybe throughout history or perhaps just by triggering specific audio clips at different volumes at different times. There's a fantastic um, sonification piece called Egypt Building Collapses by Tactical Technology Collective. And you don't need any music theory for that at all, or even code. You know, you just um, you just line up the, the sound files on your <laughs> on a timeline and then play them at different volumes. You don't need theory for that. Yeah. And I know that there's this tool called Two-Tone, which you guys have mentioned actually in your article for datajournalism.com, where you wrote about sort of data sonification for us, which was great. But I just wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about that and maybe some other tools that people could start out with who are kind of new to this, but want to experiment. Yeah, so Two-Tone is a, a free online tool that was um, developed by a company called DataViz and the Google News Initiative. And it's a very easy way into the very basics of sonification. You can throw in up to 2,000 rows of data and it will sonify them using pitch. So the higher the data, the higher the note. That's how it works. And it will show you a little bar chart at the same time so that you can kind of see what's going on while at the same time hearing it, which makes it a bit easier to understand what's happening there are different instruments that you can pick, which is really nice because I think a lot of people just default to using piano and the piano isn't necessarily the best, um, I don't know, emotional match for all data stories. Um, it's quite sort of a little bit vanilla-y. Sometimes it works great. Um, but you can also choose like a church organ or a mandolin or something else, but it definitely has its limitations. Um, alternatives, I, th I think if you're working with... Um, very small data sets, then it's possible to do a lot of sonification work manually just by using GarageBand or another simple music making tool and just adjusting the volumes or pitches of notes yourself. Um, but if you can code uh, or if you're looking for an opportunity to learn some code, then there are lots of sonification tools that are a good entry point into coding that will give you a lot more flexibility, make it much easier and quicker to do the work. Um, we love Sonic Pi, which has an amazing tutorial, really, really friendly for beginners. Um, I think the processing sound library, uh, processing is a coding language for, for create, like people getting into creative coding, which I think sonification is. And they have a great sound library, so you can use processing to get into it, um, or P5, which is very much aimed at beginners, as is processing. Um, if you're a bit more advanced in code and you just want to look for a package, then Python has SonyPy and Astronify, which is specifically for astro astronomical data. Um, there are some R packages like AudioLizar. Um, I haven't used either of those, so I can't speak to how great they are, but um, people, can, people can try them out. And in JavaScript, you've got Tone.js, which is a really good um, sound library that I, I'm really interested in working more with in the future. Now, you guys said it took about... 18 months to launch this. And, and there was a lot of research that went into this, I'm sure. And I'm sure you explored a lot of different data sets, but are, are there any type of stories that you feel like work best for data sonification that lend themselves more to it than others? Or do you feel like anything can be sonified? 
Definitely. I think the data stories that work best are those that are based around time series data themselves, um, particularly those with a kind of a clear and simple trend. You know, something gets larger over time, something gets smaller over time, something that's larger and then smaller, because these are very, very clear. Um, because music itself works through time or sound works through time, you can only hear sound in time. Um, data that is itself about, about time or progressions through time works really, really well. And actually all, all but one of our loud number sonifications for the first episode are time series data. The exception is the beer episode. Um, things that are kind of inherently about speed and pace as well. So there's a really good New York Times video. It's quite old now, it's from 2012, but it's about Olympic men's 100 meter finish times. Um, and it uses sonification to kind of play a note every time um, one of the athletes crosses an imaginary finish line just to show how narrow the margins are in sprint races. There's also a fantastic New York Times article from 2017 um, that I could mention here about the speed of fire of automatic weapons. And this is obviously a highly emotionally charged subject. And so instead of sort of using a, a gun sound, which I think would be quite baseless, they just use a very, very minimal sort of bloop sound to sonify the speed at which these different weapons fire. Um, and I thought that was very, very interesting because the, the, one, of the, one of the powers of sonification is that it can carry an emotional weight in a way that you know a, a standard bar chart doesn't. You know, where, where you can you can hook up a sonification so that it gets so loud that it hurts. You can never like make a make a bar chart where the bar is so long that it hurts. That's not something that can happen. But I think sound really kind of like reaches people in a way that is much harder to do with traditional visuals. There's definitely a lot you can do with photography. But in terms of just sort of like shapes on a page, it's hard to match the emotional intensity that you can reach with with sound. And I think that that's really, really interesting. And yeah, I particularly like that New York Times piece because it uses it very, very carefully, use it much more ethically. Who else is using sonification? Um, what other industries are, are you seeing it other than journalism and storytelling? Well, sonification is actually incredibly diverse. And this is one of the things that we became aware of when we recently ran the Sonification Festival to help launch the podcast. Um, there are people working in sonification in journalism, like you said, but also in science, um, particularly earth sciences and astronomy. There's loads of astronomers who work with sonification, um, including you know, partially sighted astronomers who use sonification to understand trends in complex data sets. Um, there are people working in art world, um, creating installations that involve sonification. There are people working in, in, in what you might call more traditional music or more computer-based music. A piece that I really like is, um, there's a piece called Noisy City by a guy called Karim Doeb. Doeb. I'm sorry, Karim, I'm probably mangling your, your last name. Um, but it's an interactive map um, and it shows you noise pollution across Brussels, right? And so as you move the cursor around the map, where, where your cursor is, you can actually hear a simulation of the amount of noise pollution you would hear in that spot. And it's a, a rare example of a, an interactive sonification, which doesn't really play out over time, but over space. You can hear whatever your mouse pointer is on. And that's a really, really cool application that I would love to see more people experiment with. And I just wonder, you know, what are the biggest challenges you both encountered when you were trying to sonify and, and come up with these stories for your podcast? 
I think for me, I mean, we were very clear from the start that with this podcast, we wanted the tracks that we made to sound like music and not to sound like quote unquote sonifications or like experiments. So things that you you would want to listen to as music by themselves that you might press play on more than once. But the issue that we had is that data and music don't really follow the same rules. You know, they're quite different. Music's got its own rules. It's got its own structures. So when you translate data sets into sounds without thinking carefully about the system, they can easily sound random and a little bit meandering or meaningless. And we thought, well, this is not enough. We want to make tracks that actually sound decent. So you've got to think carefully to come up with systems that kind of optimize the storytelling potential of the data or really showcase the trend that you want to reveal. And like I said earlier, a lot of it is trial and error. But a lot of it is really about simplification of the data. And that might be, for example, putting it in bins so that you can kind of map the, the different levels of those bins to pictures or to loudness categories. And you can hear a real difference between them. You can do things like um, smooth the data so that you can better reveal the trend. So um, we did this in our climate change episode, which is the first episode in, in the podcast. John, do you want to talk about the, the Nanana episode? Sure, yeah. So this is a um, an episode about climate change, and it's set in this little tiny village in Alaska where they set up a tripod on the river each year, and then they place bets on when that tripod is going to fall over because the ice is breaking up. And they've been doing it since 1917, which is kind of remarkable. And they've been doing it in the exact same way ever since, which makes it a really, really valuable data set for scientists who want to study how um, the climate is changing, how temperatures are changing in one of the places um, on the planet that is warming fastest, which is the Arctic. And so we took this tripod data and there were, there were kind of like lots of different ways that we experimented with mapping that tripod falling over data into sound. So it was like we, we looked at kind of like the delay between one note and another note, and then, you know, which gets like shorter over time or something like that. And in the end, we just, we, we did lots of things and they were all very, very complicated. So we just went sort of went, and, and they weren't telling the story. So we just went back to pitch. And, um, and we said that, you know, the best thing to do is just have the the um the tripod the the sound associated with the tripod get louder oh sorry not louder get higher um throughout the course of the track and so in order to do that we simplified the data and we just used a ten year moving average of the date so that instead of hearing things going up and things going down you hear this more consistent trend and you can really hear the story more clearly and that's easier for the audience to understand too right. <laughs> Exactly. Because one of the disadvantages of sonification compared with visualization, which is not something we've, we've talked about so much, actually, is that, um, you know, with, with a visualization, you can read maybe a lot of finer detail. With sonification, you can't very easily, like, look back at the earlier part of the chart because it would mean rewinding. And we don't really have good interfaces for doing that, right? Um, you can kind of, like, scrub along the track axis, but it's it's not simple to do and you don't know where you're going. So you do have to, Miriam kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier where she was talking about how it's very important for the story to be quite simple. You have to have a relatively simple narrative that people are going to be able to get. And then you can kind of, I don't know, contrast several simple narratives together. People can 
can follow that. But if you've got lots of noisiness in the data, lots of detail, we found that it makes a lot of sense to kind of smooth that out to, to bring down the complexity a little bit. Otherwise, you just hear noise. You don't hear data. And that's actually thinking about the limitations of sonification. There are certain data sets where sonification perhaps isn't appropriate, where you, you want to compare, for example, the size of things between categories. You want to compare the size of a country's economy or the amount of money spent. Um, the kind of data that you would use a bar chart to visualize isn't always a good choice of sonification um, because, because sound always moves through time. You've always got this kind of sense of progression. Um, things where you might want to use a chart where you want to compare everything all at once, like a snapshot, you wouldn't necessarily use sonification for that. So unordered categories don't work so well, but ordered categories or time series data do work really, really well. But sonification kind of, it taxes your memory. Like by the time you get to the end, you have to try and remember what happened at the beginning. So one of the challenges is how do you create that reference point where you can refer back to, you know, whether that's a pitch or a loudness, um, a fixed point from which you can then compare what happens afterwards. And that's one of the big challenges. And I wonder what's next for data sonification in your opinion? Uh, do you think data sonification will become mainstream? I think it will become one of the tools that people use in their toolbox. I think it will definitely become more acceptable, particularly as stories become more multimedia, as we start to use VR and storytelling. Um, because sonification really does have potential to tell data stories powerfully and emotionally, and also to conjure up what you might call um, new virtual worlds, um, as, particularly when it's combined with video or with animation or with graphics, but also by itself. Um, and I think one of the things I find may increase the acceptability of sonification is just the explosion in, in the popularity of podcasts in recent years. You know, people are getting more and more used to absorbing information just through audio alone. Um, at the moment, I think sonification does have kind of a novelty appeal. Like often it will just hit the front page just for being sonification. Like someone bothered to sonify data is still a story. Um, but that will probably change, I imagine, as it becomes something people are more familiar with. You know, a lot of mainstream news organisations are starting to use sonifications. The BBC, uh, New York Times have been doing it for quite a few years now. Um, the Economist, they've got a, a COVID podcast in which they have a kind of regular sonification feature, which is really good. So I think that it's going to become more and more familiar territory. I think to add to that, one, one of the things that is a big advantage of, of sonification, which wasn't a, a, a major goal of our project, but is, is a big, um, is something that tends to come up a lot around the topic is, is that of accessibility. Sonification could be an incredibly useful tool for making traditional visualizations accessible. And I hope that as people start to think more about accessibility in their work, we might see sonification appear more as a result. Absolutely. And Finally, what's next for Loud Numbers? Can we expect season two anytime <laughs> soon? Or I know how much work this took, but yeah, what, what's next? <laughs> given, given how long it took to make season one in our spare time, I think uh, it'll probably take us a while unless we're able to get a, a sponsor of some sort. <laughs> but, um, you know, we're, we're both freelance journalists and we love working together. And so, you know, Loud Numbers is, is very much something that will continue going on. And, you know, if there are news organizations organizations that are listening to this that would be interested in partnering with us on a project, then we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at numbersloud at gmail.com. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there's there's very much going to be more 
lab numbers projects in the future, but uh, we're going to take a little a little break first. Well, thank you so much, um, Duncan Gear and Miriam Quick, for joining us today on Conversations with Data. Thank you so much. Thank you. A big thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in today. Want to hear more interesting discussions on data journalism? You can subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, Google, and Apple Podcasts. You can also get the podcast straight to your inbox by subscribing to our Conversations with Data newsletter at datajournalism.com forward slash subscribe. I've been your host, Tara Kelly, and that's all for now. See you next time.